Well, hello, and welcome to the 49th installment of For What It's Worth podcast, the podcast that makes you feel alive. Uh, luckily, there's nothing going on in the world right now really of note, so this is going to be a wrap for today. I'm over. It's done. Actually, no. That's not true. I just maxed out my levels. I just put my phone on airplane mode because the feedback was astounding. Sitting in front of me, I'm staring at two boxes of chocolate peanut butter Lara bars, a bunch of Builder bars, pounds and pounds, five pounds of gluten-free flour, and I'm carbo-loading. I'm eating all of it at once, carbo-loading for the next ride. So today, what happened today so far before we get into this podcast? So I woke up at 5.30, wide awake, bolted straight up in bed, thinking about the third issue of AG23 and the six contributors that I have chosen and how to preliminarily put that work together to send it to the designer so that it makes as much sense as possible so she has the less heavy lifting to do, but she's going to do what she wants with it because she's a million times better than me. And I, I laid there for about 30 minutes grinding on this, and then I looked at the clock and it was 5.58, and I thought I'm not going to be able to go back to sleep, so I got up. And I made coffee, and I read this amazing book that I started called White Tears. It's really good. And uh, then I did yoga. And then I did about 14 miles on my bike. I intended to do 30 miles on my bike, but the wind today was blowing like you cannot believe. For those of you who don't live in the West or the Central Plains, uh, when you mention wind, a lot of people who live in the cities, especially in the South on the East Coast, are like, oh, wind can't be that bad. It's that bad. It was stand and pedal downhill wind kind of this morning. So out of the north, I just took a beating all the way back to the house. And after about 10 miles, I was like, just get me to the house. Just get me home. So I did that. And then I released a film and I did all, answered all my YouTube comments. And then I answered all my blurb email. Then I answered all my shifter email. And then I just spent about an hour and a half on the phone with photographers and now I'm doing the podcast and then I have a blurb call for an hour and then I have another phone call after that and then I will work on this podcast. So it's been a typical day, nothing out of the ordinary, nothing extraordinary, just what happens when you're me. So let's get started with this because it's too good to really keep it from the masses any any longer. There could be insurrection. <laughs> just kidding. Okay. For those of you new to this podcast, I always begin with, who is this podcast for? Why on earth would you want to waste your time with me? And, and this podcast is for anyone who thought the socialists were going to take over and went ahead and preemptively learned both Mandarin and Cantonese. If that's you, then this podcast is for you. Because the great evil in the world now to fear, apparently, is the, quote, socialist and we're going to get to this in a minute. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about politics this week. It would, it would be easy to spend the entire time talking about politics. But I kind of feel like blowing my own horn here in saying what I said in 2016 and every year since then, which was, if we're dumb enough to elect this guy, we deserve every single thing that happens to us. Now, the one stretch from that is the death of the police officers and the death of the people at the insurrection last week. That is inexcusable on anybody's watch. But for the rest of the shenanigans, we deserved it because we knew what he was before we elected him, and we did it anyway. So it's our fault. So if you went out and said, oh, my God, the socialists are taking over. They're taking over. They're going to take away English, and I have to learn Chinese. If you went ahead and learned Mandarin and Cantonese, God, good on you. Way to go. That's not easy. Neither one of those languages. Why don't throw Thai in there on top of it if you're looking for something more challenging? Anyone who preemptively learned Cantonese, come on in. Okay, our hero of the week is twofold. 
And I'm going to throw myself in the first category, but not because I want to, because I have to. The first hero of the week is any of you out there, and I'm throwing myself in this category. By the way, that's my refrigerator that just kicked on. Uh, anyone who's taking care of a parent, and I'm not joking about this. This is the one serious part of this broadcast. My mom's having some memory issues and some short-term memory issues, and it's, it's getting acute very quickly, and it's not good. And I'm not in the state where she lives. My brother and sister are, so they're close. They're spending a lot more time with her. But it's heartbreaking because I get somewhere between two and five calls a day. And they're typically a little bit panicky and a little um, no memory of the prior calls from that day. And they could be five minutes apart and there's no memory of the prior call. And also there are moments of, of lucidity where she realizes she is losing it, losing her mind. And she'll verbalize it and then call back five minutes later. So it's really scary and sad, and it's a bummer. And if you're taking care of a parent, we're all going to be there for the most part, many of us, and so it's not easy. Just thought I'd throw that out there. And the second hero of the week is a little bit more lighter note here. His name is Mikey Wright. And if you're in the surfing world, you probably know who Mikey Wright is. But if you're not in the surfing world, you probably would, would never know him. And just know, want to say he's an Australian, mullet. And uh, something happened recently which kind of had a personal angle to me, but happened in a location that connected Mikey Wright and myself, if you will. So I used to cover the Pipeline Masters in Hawaii. I went like 10 years in a row. The Triple Crown of Surfing, which typically crowns the world surfing champion each year, ends in Hawaii in the winter. There's three contests. There's Haleiwa, Sunset, and then Pipeline. And I would go to photograph Pipe Masters, and I did a long-term project called North Shore Journal, which was sort of about the culture on the North Shore, at least superficially. It's a very difficult culture to get involved with unless you're one of the crew, if, if you know what I mean. And so it was a little difficult to do, but I had a great time working on this. I love Hawaii. I love the North Shore. And uh, so I was doing a project once on someone who, uh, you know, this long-term North Shore Journal project, and I was at Sunset Beach one day. And it was toward the end of the day, and there are all kinds of warning signs on the beach. Do not go in the water. Like the, the swell and the rip is so bad. If you're a tourist, you have no business being in this water. These signs run up and down the beach from Haleiwa, from backdoor, sunset, pipeline. You know, you, as a tourist, you look at that water and you go, I'm not going in there. I wouldn't last five minutes. Me, I wouldn't go in there. When I would go to Hawaii in the North Shore in the winter, I would go in at Turtle Bay. And that's about it. I, I had no business going in at Rocky Point or Pipe or whatever. First of all, I'd never be able to paddle out. Two, I would never survive. Three, let, surfing would be the furthest thing from my mind. It would just be survival. So I'm at Sunset Beach one day, and I'm photographing someone. And the person I'm photographing starts saying, he's gone. He's gone. I can't help him. He's gone. He's gone. He's going to go. He's going to go. I can't help him. I'm not going. I'm not getting in. I'm not going to help him. I'm not going to stop it. I'm not going to go. And I'm like... What? And I look up, and there's a tourist standing knee-deep in the water at sunset. Now, you might think you're safe knee-deep in the water at sunset, but you're not. And within 10 seconds, this guy is in the rip and getting sucked out, and he's all the way out at the break. And sunset breaks a long way from shore. And, it, and Hawaii in the winter is heavy water. If you're not a water person, a waterman, a good swimmer, and you don't have fins on or a surfboard, you're hosed. And so this guy was hosed. He was 100% going to die unless someone saved him. And water patrol jumped on their jet skis and, and went out and saved him. But I was like, number one, idiot, read the signs. Number two, you're very lucky. So two weeks ago, approximately, Mikey Wright, pro surfer, pro, surfer, pro surfer, is at what looks to me like the Surfer Magazine house on the North Shore, which is pretty close to Pipeline. It's like backdoor area, Pipeline area. 
and he's, you see this, this footage, and you see his sister in the foreground, and you're looking out past them, and there's not like a massive swell, but the current at that time, it looked like three sets of waves coming in at the same time, which means the current along the shoreline is treacherous to say the least. It is hardcore. It's just white water for 50 yards and then the break. And a tourist is getting sucked out. And you hear Mikey Wright say, hold my beer. Someone's going to need saving. That is the most classic, epic, pre-hero moment ever. Like the coolest thing ever. Hold my beer. And he jumps the fence and sprints down to the beach. His sister's guiding him from the beach because she's a surfer as well. He goes way past her and then dives into the water past her because the current at that point is pulling you down towards sunset, towards the lifeguard tower. And he goes in and she comes flying by and she's about to go under. Like this is getting to the point where she ain't going to come up if she goes under and he nabs her. And then his sister guides him from the shoreline saying, you know, move this way, go that way, do this. And they get him to the beach. And I was like, good on you. That, that is like the coolest thing in the world to make a save because if you've ever been in that situation where you've been in the water and realize you're in big trouble, it is a very peculiar feeling that is unlike anything else because we've all been taught over the years how horrible it is to drown. It's got to be one of the worst ways to go. And so in the back of your head, when you, you realize you're in that situation, I don't, I've never personally been in that situation and I've been trained and told what to do if you're in it in terms of going with it and then going parallel to the beach kind of thing, waiting for a better way in. But I have been in the ocean when I started cramping so bad that my legs balled up behind me and I couldn't move. I had to grab onto a piece of coral and hold myself there. And I was a long way out. I was down in the Caribbean. I was way too far out and started cramping up like really bad, not like a normal Charlie horse, but both legs cramping. I don't remember why. I think maybe I drank like an 18 pack of bush light the night before and no water. And then I decided to go swimming way far out because I'm really smart. I went to public school. So those are our heroes of the week. Anyone who's taking care of a parent and Mikey Wright, way to go, Mikey. That was a very cool moment. Uh, Scum of the week. God, it's just really hard. uh, Literally, when I think about scum of the week, I just don't know how to narrow it down. There's so many people out there that kind of deserve it. And I always look for someone who may be on the fringe that we're not thinking about. Um, and this week, God, it's hard. I mean, I guess you could say the people who are now trying to act like they were doing the right thing all along over the last four years, the people jumping off the Trump bandwagon on the Republican side or big tech, big tech, we could just cement into scum of the week. Uh, it literally over, it's not just the last four years, but like these, these platforms have been doing damage for so long, and we could just cement them in. I'm just going to skip over scum of the week. There's too much turmoil in the world, too much negativity. Let's just forget about it this week. Let's talk about something really funny, which are my tech woes. Uh, this was a new segment I wanted to add. I started adding a few weeks ago, and it's great. Uh, this week, my tech woes are threefold, two connected and one, one independent. Anyone who saw the film I released today which was uh, Q&A number nine, we'll see the focus is all over the place. Let me explain to you what happened. My Fuji X-T4 is on my tripod. I have my Atomos Ninja recorder. So it's recording uh, 1080p high-def video out to the, uh, to the machine. And I do a recording about the bike raffle, and it's perfect. The exposure doesn't move. The focus doesn't move. It's great. I reach up. I turn the camera. I stop the recording. 
I start the camera again. I literally, I'm, I'm still sitting in my chair. I reach forward, I, I stop recording, I start recording, and I do the next film. And the focus is all over the place. Nothing has changed. I haven't changed clothes. I haven't changed anything, nothing, and the camera will not focus. It is bouncing all over the place. Do you know how maddening that is when you sit down to edit and you realize that the focus is all over for no reason and you're editing two films back to back? That was this week. That happened. And the other thing that started happening, which is kind of, it's not a big deal, but it's just odd, is that I use my phone as my hotspot. And so the iPhone 12 antenna is horrible. This is a terrible phone compared to the 11. Do not let anyone tell you that if you live in a rural place or a place with a weak signal, that this will not have an impact on your life. It will. The antenna in this, in this phone is horrible to make phone calls now, and it's getting progressively worse. I have to go outside on the patio to make phone calls because they no longer work where I'm sitting right now. With the 11, they were fine here. In my office was totally fine. That doesn't work anymore with the 12, so that sucks. So I use it as a hotspot. And when I'm signing it, connecting it to my new laptop, which by the way, crashes at least once a day, the battery lasts for less than an hour. That thing's kind of a nightmare, but it works and it's much faster than my old one. So I keep it plugged in and Hey, you know, I'm counting my blessings. So when I use the phone as a hotspot, it will not connect unless I have the maximum capability or connectability toggle off. That has to be off. If you turn it on, it won't recognize the phone anymore. This makes no sense at all. I have to, had to do this 100 times, so I know exactly what I'm talking about. That has to be off for the phone to work as a hotspot with the laptop, but it has to be on for the phone to work with a hot, as a hotspot for the TV. No rhyme or reason, no distance issues, nothing. It's just a bug in the system that if you do not do this, it will not connect as, as a hotspot. The 11 had none of these problems, had none of these issues whatsoever, and the 12 is a major step back in terms of technology, at least in my opinion. And I know saying that, the Apple apologists are literally on fire right now just even saying something about that. So that was my tech woes of the week. And hopefully my tech woes will not translate into yours. You can learn from me, keep your iPhone 11, or potentially get a Samsung or something. I don't know. Okay. We're going to get this out of the way right now, which is talking about what's been happening over the last 10 days or so with the uh, takeover of the state, uh, I was going to say state capitol, the takeover of the capitol building, and just the, the craziness that's happening in Washington. Uh, number one is we have to fix our education system. People who are prone to conspiracy, being prone to, to lead to violent action, being prone to do things that are against common sense— people doing things against the will of the people, the good of the people, that is typically coming from people who are undereducated. And I, I think that fixing our education system is one of the top three responsibilities of whoever comes into office from whatever party. At this point, I don't care. It's that we have to fix this because educated people don't do what we saw last week. So number one, Second part of point I want to make is look at the physicality of the rioters themselves, primarily Caucasian, primarily male, primarily youngish to middle-aged, primarily what I'm guessing is lonely, primarily single, primarily undereducated, and primarily online. online. And I think what I see when I look at that crowd of people is frustration. I see people who have who wake up in the morning and probably say, I don't have a whole lot going for me. Life is stacked against me. 
there's not a lot of hope. I don't have a lot of direction. I'm willing to be led by someone else, however misguided their ideas and beliefs are. As long as it allows me to be a part of a community, then I'm finally a part of something. And that's kind of what I see with militias and, and folks going way back. Uh, I think there's a lot of consistencies to that. I think what is intensified it is the ability to connect online and to be inside of things like Parler or Telegram or whatever it is you're using to stoke the sort of fears inside those groups of people. And there's a lot of propaganda in the world today. And if you're undereducated and you don't really have direction, it's pretty easy to get sucked into that. Look, we've had cults for a long time. You know, I grew up in a little town in Indiana that had a cult based out of the town. This is nothing new. The Moonies were around for a long time. You know, the, uh, David Koresh and the Branch Davidians. This is happening all over the place. People are sucked in for one, one reason or another. And I kind of feel like this is the same thing. Again, we can't draw lines in the sand. You cannot make blanket statements about all of these people and then cast them off because it's only going to amplify the problem. We literally have to suck it up and we have to figure out how to reach out to these people and say, look, we need to get back to a level of civility. There's a few things I'm going to talk about here coming up that I think are reminders of where we were and maybe potentially where we could get back to. Uh, there's a lot of shoulds and coulds and mights and considering coming out of Washington right now. The vast majority of it means nothing. The system is broken. It doesn't matter that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are in there now. Great. I'm happy that Trump is gone, but we're still have, we still have a broken underlying system that we, we haven't fixed. And there doesn't seem to be any willingness to fix it. This is like putting a 454 big block Chevy in a car with a rusted frame. As soon as you unleash the 454 with a four-barrel carb on top and your, and your air intake turned upside down, which is what everyone did in high school, has absolutely no effect on anything. But the cool kids took their air filter cover and they inverted it. Because maybe, I don't know, maybe there's an extra horsepower in there. I don't know. It's like putting, our political system is like putting a 454 on a Hyundai with a rusted frame. It looked, might look cool from the outside. And you know, you're going to be look cool at the stoplight doing the gangster lean. But as soon as you hit the gas, it's going to literally torque the entire motor mount off of the frame, and you'll probably burst into flame and burn up. That's what our political system is. Let's also, point number four about this, uh, sort of, this is sort of a mini internal point, is that Trump is a reminder that all it took to basically derange, to, to destroy our system was one guy who was kind of a, a mess, and he came in and, you know, he, we knew who he was before he came in and he just laid waste to everything and everyone in his path. And it turns out our democracy is pretty damn fragile. And so it's a reminder again of the same thing I just said, which is the underlying system doesn't work. So I don't want to sit here and complain and go, it's broken. It's broken. I can't do anything about it. Why not? Maybe I can do something about it. And maybe everyone on this podcast, if we got together and we started a Slack channel, just kidding. If we started an email communication or something saying, you got any ideas? Uh, I don't know how to fix this. Because clearly the people in Washington do not know how to fix it. And two, they don't have a vested interest in fixing it. Because remember lefties, remember snowflakes, that there's a lot of Dems who don't want to upset the apple cart because they're making money and they're corrupt as well. And they're part of the system. Look at what happened to Bernie in 2016 how the Dems turned on Bernie and just ate him at the political convention. How about that walk of shame up the stairway shaking his head? That's because Bernie was crazy enough to burn the system to the ground. AOC, everyone's talking about her being president someday. I 
who knows? However, that she has to watch out for the Dems because she represents a re- redo, a giant redo button on the system. And there's a lot of power players in the Democratic Party who want nothing to do with change. Want, it, want, want a little piece of uh, evidence? $600 check after eight months of fighting. Your Democratic, beloved Democratic Congress got you 600 bucks in the middle of a global pandemic. So don't go thinking one side is, is some sort of mystical white knight. It's not. We're all, we're all in the middle of it, and it's, it sucks. Okay, let's move on. That was my political take for the week. Um, I will bring up something minor political coming on, but it's really about the space shuttle. So bear with me. Point number two is incredibly important. So I, I've been fortunate in my life to drive a lot of really good cars and trucks. Not only cars and trucks that I've owned, Toyota Land Cruiser 1983 FJ60 wagon, four-speed manual, Sky Blue, that was one of my favorite vehicles. I had a Chevy S10 Blazer 4x4 when they first came out that I put dual exhaust and headers on, which I think was literally the first and only S10 Blazer I ever saw with headers and dual exhaust. It sounded amazing. It was jet black on black on black. It fell apart at 30,000 miles and then ended up getting stolen like six times. They chainsawed the uh, stock AM FM radio out of the dashboard. We just basically put dirt on it after that. It was dead. I've driven all kinds of pickups and 4x4s and trucks, but I've also driven Corvettes. I've driven a whole bunch of different Porsches, 911s, 928s, 914s, 924s. Um, I've driven Panteras. I drove um, XJ, XKE, 12, 12, uh, V12 Jaguar convertibles. I've driven a bunch of really fantastic sports cars over the years. A ton of Mercedes two-seat, four-seat, AMGs. I've driven all kinds of stuff. Again, not cars that I owned. I, were just, I was just able to drive them. But the most fun car I have ever driven, and I'm not ashamed to say it. Well, I'm a little bit ashamed to say it. It's not a Nissan Pulsar. Stop. That is a car for women. Nobody but women drove Nissan Pulsars. It was cool enough. I wanted to drive it. I wanted a Nissan Pulsar with a six-inch lift and buckshot mutters, but it was not in the cards. It's not a Nissan Pulsar. Stop. My favorite car of all time, the most fun I've ever had driving a car, and this is a little, I'm tipping my hat to MacGruber, is a Mazda MX-5 Miata. Now, I drove one of these because my wife was in the market for a car. This is probably 10 years ago. We're in Southern California. We're at Mazda looking at something else. Um, Not something exciting. I forget what we were looking at, but it was not exciting. It was like a Mazda, regular Mazda. And then we're on the lot, and we look over, and there's an MX-5 maroon convertible Miata five-speed manual. And I said to my wife, let's drive it. Still to this day, the most enjoyable, fun car I've ever driven in my life. You talk about short, short throw shifters. You know, if you, if you buy a manual transmission, you can put what's called a short shift kit on it, which when you're moving the shift lever, sometimes depending on the car, that shift has to move a long way. It's like clunk and it go, you move a foot. Your whole entire right arm is moving. And you can put what's called a short shift kit on it, which shortens that distance, makes it really quick and easy. The Miata does not need that. The Miata had a gear shift throw that I swear to God was about an inch and a half. The gear shift was probably four inches long, 
maybe five inches long at the most. And it, it just literally was like click, 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 click. And the thing handled, it was built well, it sounded good. I was like, I am in love with this car and I'm slightly embarrassed. But if you're a Miata driver out there, just send me the keys already, get it over with. I'm providing a service with this podcast. And I just wanted to bring it up because I was watching MacGruber the other day, which if you haven't seen that movie, it's life-changing. It's awesome. And he drives a Miata with a pull-out stereo. And I was like, I kind of secretly want to be him because I loved MacGyver when that show was on and I was in middle school. And uh, he drove a Jeep. But uh, the Mazda Miata is an awesome car if you don't know about it. And by the way, the Mazda Miata has been like top 10 car of the year for something like 30 years in a row. I don't know if it's car and driver or consumer reports or whatever. It's always in the top 10 because it's so much fun to drive and it's built so well. How many old Miatas do you see on the road? I see some of the original Miatas that came out probably 25 years ago. I still see them driving around. They're always looking a little sketchy now. And the person driving them looks like probably felon. Well, that's what I was trying to figure out how the best way to say that. Felon. Yeah. But anyway, I'll take one. Mazda, if you're listening, please send me a Miata. I'll do a massive road trip. You know what I would love to do? I would love to take a Miata from Prudhoe Bay to Patagonia. We'd put some BF Goodrich all-terrains on it and uh, and a bike rack on the back and just go for it in a, in a camera bag. That's it. No No change of clothes. No water. Just go, extra gas, whatever, put racks and lights on it, make it like a Baja Miata. That would be fantastic. Mazda, please send me one. Point number three today is about ego in photography. And this is one of the most challenging parts of my life going back for the last 11 years. Now, as a photographer for the 27 years prior to the past 11, I also had to deal with photographers with ego. That's just a part of it. You know, it started in photography school. You had kids that had ego. And I don't know, maybe I had an ego. I don't think so, but maybe I did. But there's a lot of ego. And then I work as a professional photographer. You're around people in labs. You're around galleries and museum curators and art buyers and agents. And you're in this industry of people. And you realize how much ego is floating around in the photo world. Then I get a job for Blurb. And my job is no longer making pictures. My job is working for this print platform. And I'm sort of a liaison between clients and the company. And so I'm dealing with every kind of person you can possibly imagine. And every level of bookmaker, from the incredibly skilled, high-end, professional self-publisher to someone who has no idea how to download the software. I work with everyone, and I treat everyone the same. Because I tell you, that person who doesn't know how to load the software... Number one, a lot of those people have incredible stories to tell. And number two, they are often so appreciative and stoked, regardless of how their book looks or feels or sells. They don't care. They're just stoked. And that's a really fun thing to be around. Pros are being held back at an astounding level scale because of ego. Ego is such a destructive thing. And it not only is just abrasive to be around, but it's also... It, it forces the photographers into being beholden to people who are not them. It forces them into ideology that doesn't belong to them. It forces them into conformity that isn't them. And it's, it's really hard to deal with. And, and luckily, you know, because of COVID and where we're living now, I'm not traveling as much. I'm not doing as much one-on-one interaction. It's been very tapered off. But occasionally I see these little bits 
or I hear things, someone will say something to me or they'll write something to me and it's just a really awful thing to be around. So if you are if you are one of these people who just random, randomly admits up front that you have a world-class ego, let me just say this. You are not going to make it because the people that had egos, I saw the great ego die off in the mid-90s. So when the mid-90s came around and digital technology showed up, and all of a sudden, you could put a camera like this in the hands of someone who really wasn't that skilled, and through the ability to overshoot and the ability to correct things in post, you saw a variety of people getting assignments that had no business getting assignments. And who you saw start to fall off were the egomaniacs, because clients said, I don't want to deal with these people anymore. I don't want that ego. I don't want the abrasion. I don't want the condescension. And those folks who during the 60s, 70s, 80s, you could be a complete egomaniac. And man, there's names, names and faces flying through my, my mind right now that I'm not going to obviously say. Those folks started to dry up because clients were like, look, I don't want to deal with that. And I can give a camera to this person who's not as good, but we can fix it in post. And you know what? It's pretty darn good. And he's, that person's cool, and I don't have to deal with the ego. And I think now that's magnified even more. If you're a world-class ego, you're not going to get work. You, even on the social side, like if you're doing just doing posts on social, even that, the conversations behind the scenes are like, who are these people? Who you are as a person is incredibly important to brands that are reaching out to work with you. Because they're looking and saying, are you a liability or not? And if you've got an ego or you're putting stuff online that is, is kind of run amok because of your ego, it's going to be hard. just want to bring that up. Don't be egotistical. You can be confident. Confident is a really good thing. Confident but not insecure and not egotistical. It's just not that important. Okay. Point number four. I've mentioned this woman before. She's one of my new modern heroes. Never met her, probably never will. Uh, she, her name is Lael, Lael, L-A-E-L, Wilcox, fourth generation Alaskan from Anchorage. She is one of the most badass bicycle riders you are ever going to find. So Lael Wilcox won the Tour Divide, uh, set the women's record, almost broke the men's record. She's done long distance races and tours. She run, won the Transamerica race across the United States on a bicycle and beating all the men. Uh, she's a character. She's an unbelievable bike rider. She also looks relatively down to earth. Uh, and her girlfriend slash partner did a film called Lyle Rides Alaska, which just came out on YouTube. It's 17 minutes long. Just watch this. So it's not, nothing about the film is over the top. It's on-camera interviews, and it's her riding. And her back in 2015, she had the idea that she would ride every major road in Alaska, which is thousands of miles, many of which are through the middle of nowhere, dirt roads, uh, exposed grizzly bears, freezing rain, dust, you know, the whole thing, with what makes Alaska so fantastic. And if you've never been there, you cannot possibly understand if you haven't been there, make plans to go, but leave as light a footprint as you can possibly leave. That's my, my advice, because it is a pristine place, and it will not support massive amounts of people. That's just the way, nature of the beast. But Lyle Rides Alaska, I've watched it twice already. Um, it's very inspiring to me, not only the environment, but the story, cycling itself, what she's been able to accomplish. It's a very cool thing. And... Uh, 
If you don't have a bike, get a bike and get out there. Okay, point number five, Atomos Ninja. I have an Atomos Ninja recorder that I am now using to record my films. And I'm telling you that because I know the geeks out there want to know. And this is because I can't stop staring at that goddamn flip-out screen on the side of my X-T4. It could be 10 feet away, and I would still continue to stare at it. Secondarily, the camera will shut off after recording like 30 minutes. And with the Atomos, that's not the case. It'll record and record and record. It's also a much bigger monitor than what's on the camera, so it's much easier to see. Now, just five minutes ago in the mail, I got a hot shoe adapter that will hold the Atomos in the hot shoe. So now I'm going to be looking. It's going to look to you like I'm actually looking at the lens, but I'm looking at the preview screen above. I'm going to try to look at the lens, but I can't. It's so hard. I don't know why. But anyway, the recorder is amazing. And it is like just I was nervous touching it because I thought, one, my death ray is going to break it. But two, it does so many different things. And the whole entire back, it's like five inches across, I think. The whole back screen is a touchscreen that has every menu option available. Half of the time, I have no idea what I'm looking at. I don't know what H.264 is, but I'm using it. I don't really know what F-Log is other than it looks flat. So to me, it's probably like a, a, a digital movie negative, like a raw file. I don't know. Using that too. I'm using sliders and scales and little helix-looking diagrams and monitors, and I'm just punching it, looking at myself like, mm, Milner, good choice. Yeah, you know what you're doing. I don't, but it's a great device. The only weird thing about it is the battery required to power it is probably three and a half inches tall, and it's huge, and it weighs a ton. But I have a bunch of ideas for this thing that I'm going to start using it in the field, and I'm going to use it uh, for all of my recordings from here on out. And it's really solid and, like, it just feels moistaka, if you know what I mean. Okay, that was point number five was Atomos Ninja. Point number six, I just posted something in the community section on my YouTube channel because I'm a social media darling. Uh, we are in the middle of a massive drought. And this gets lost because of the chaos coming out of Washington. And it gets lost because the drought has been going on for so long. But it is getting progressively worse. And we are at a situation where we are already... In January, we are at critical panic mode for the rest of the year for water in the state of New Mexico. So yesterday, the farmers south of Elephant Butte, which is a reservoir uh, in the southern part of the state, were told zero allocation for water, which is just astounding. Because south of Elephant Butte, you have Hatch, where all the green chili is grown, and you have the farmland. Last time I drove through there, the Rio Grande was dry um, on the bridge between the I-25 and the uh, town of Hatch, the river was already dry. So this is bad. And there's a disconnect in America because the people who live in the, in the coastal cities, New York, San Francisco, LA, et cetera, they tend to not be very knowledgeable about conditions in America. Uh, people in Los Angeles will, in the middle of a stage three drought, will get up in the morning and water concrete driveways. I'm not joking. They were trying to find people. They were trying to stop people. And people will, this is a very peculiar thing native to Southern California, is people water their concrete driveways to get the dust off. And it is, it is moronic. It is selfish. It's maddening. And they couldn't stop people. Even in the middle of Stage 3 drought where you're driving down roads in neighborhoods in California and there's huge flashing billboards saying drought, 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 like they just could not get it through. Cities like Los Angeles, San Diego, Phoenix, Tucson are in serious, serious trouble. 
A friend reached out last week and was asking me about New Mexico and are people talking about these conditions here? Do you think it will affect real estate? Absolutely. It's been affecting real estate here for a hundred years. Um, drought, New Mexicans are very drought savvy because it is a daily conversation. It's a daily scenario. There is no snowpack right now. They're making snow. We haven't had snow in quite some time. Uh, and even the snow that we've had has been very brief, very light. There's no snow in the forecast for the next 10 days, and we're going to be 50 degrees this week. That is not normal, people. Those are huge changes. Even in the 15 years that we've been living here, uh, the first basically 10 years of living in New Mexico, we had heavy monsoonal rain every summer, which is the norm. We had snowfall during the winter. It was it was relatively common to get that 6, 8, 10 inches of snow overnight. I have pictures of my Volkswagen Jetta with a foot of snow on it in downtown Santa Fe. We have not had that in years. The last five years has been a very serious tapering off of moisture, both in the summer and the winter, and it's a problem. And when people talk about manufacturing snow, that's horrible for the environment. You're pulling water from somewhere else, and you're burning fossil fuel to turn it into snow for people's entertainment. It's not a good thing. So when people very casually toss that out there, they're not thinking about the environmental ramifications of that. So a lot of times people live in cities. They don't know where their food comes from. They don't know where their water comes from, et cetera. If you look at New York City and what they had to do to secure water sources over the years, that's another horrible story. It's kind of all over the place. Water is going to become the singular most important fluid. It is not going to be oil. It is going to be water. And people are going to be fighting water wars if they're not already. And it's not just here. It's all over. But just next time you leave the water on or you're going to take seven showers in a week uh, for no reason, you know, I take about two showers a week sometimes three, and I am sweating my ass off every day. I do yoga almost every day. I do cycling. I do hiking. I do running. I do all kinds of stuff where I'm sweating. And you may think that's disgusting that I only take two or three showers a week, but I'm also living in an incredibly dry environment. So the, today when I got off my bike, my clothing was soaked with sweat, but I stood outside and within 30 seconds, I am bone dry and freezing. And I feel like right now I'm not tacky. I'm not sticky. I don't need to take a shower. The only person in this house is my wife. She's disgusted by me on a normal day, whether I'm showered or not. It doesn't matter if I go four days. In fact, she just laughs. If I like grabbed her, if I, let's say that I was really disgusting and tacky and sticky. If I grabbed her hand and stuck it, to me, and I said, look how disgusting I am. You know what she would do? She would just laugh. She would laugh. That's it. So why am I wasting water? Let's move on. I did a film last week that, that's taken off. People seem to really like it, and I thought it was not good. I thought it was average. I just thought it was, okay, I'm going to do this film because I thought about the idea, and then I did it, and people were like, this is amazing. It's called Just Make One, and it's about the, the power and in, in reality of knowing that you can make a single copy of a book. That's all you need to make. Not every book needs to have a fundraising campaign. Not every book needs to make you famous. Not every book needs to make money. Not every book is a judge of your character and your career and everything else. This ties into the ego that I was talking about earlier. Photographers assume that everyone loves them and everyone is interested in their work and everyone wants to buy a book, and that is simply not true. In fact, the people who are interested who will buy a book are a tiny proportion of the population. And that has always been true going back to the origins of the printing press. So just make one was saying, Hey, 
you have this ability with print-on-demand technology to make a single copy of a book. Why not take advantage of it? Why, instead of stressing yourself out and freaking yourself out over trying to do a huge print run and selling books to people you don't know, hiring a designer, stressed out, worrying about it, spending a year of your life or 18 months of your life doing this, why not just make a single copy of a book? And then if you feel like enhancing that after you get it, then why not? And so I show a couple of books that I did this very thing. Now, I call them edition of one. Which is which meaning I will only print one copy of this book ever, and then I move on. And some of these were projects that I worked on for quite some time, knowing that I was only going to make one copy and move on. And again, that ego in us says, "Oh, that's not enough. I have to. Everyone has to know about this, and this should be part of my resume. And maybe I should do a show and get a gallery show and museum and blah blah blah." And then your life sucks, right? And so, and then you're unhappy, and then you call me and tell me how unhappy you are. So, just make one. And I'm going to do another another film follow-up called Just Make Another One, and I'm going to showcase some of the other edition of one books that I've done. Uh, I found one today that I absolutely love, and it's a collaboration with somebody who I think might listen to this podcast, believe it or not. It's a book that he and I did together, and it's I every time I look at it, I just love it. it 99.9% .9 of what makes it good is him, not me. I will take credit for getting the ball rolling. I got the ball rolling. I took the first step. He did all the rest, and he's way more talented than I am. Just make one. And the reason I'm bringing it up here now is I just want to tell you, if you, don't, if you haven't seen this film, you may want to watch it. You may not. doesn't matter. Just make a single copy of a single book, and then if you want to enhance it afterwards, get it debossed. Get it foil stamped. Punch a hole in the cover. Dip it in paint. Cover it in cement. It doesn't matter. Just play and have fun and be creative. That, in essence, is why we're here. We are supposed to be creative people. Let's act like it and not go down that road that everybody thinks they have to go down. Just enjoy it. It's fun. Okay, point number eight. By the way, the last thing I'm going to share on this is a toilet story about Guatemala. So make sure you don't leave now because the last story is going to be disgusting and awesome. So point number eight is about Albania. Uh, Elena Dorfman came through Santa Fe a couple weeks ago, I was able to do an audio interview with her, which I'm going to post when the second issue of AG23 comes out because she's in it. And we are scheduled to teach two classes in Albania in September of 2021. There will be a week in between, but we're going to teach a week class up in the north and a week class in the south if everything goes as planned. And, and Seeing, as I read yesterday, that they're talking best case scenario, if everyone gets vaccinated, you're talking about a year before herd immunity really takes effect. So odds are, my guess is I don't think these are going to fly. There's a chance I would be teaching in Spain as well um, and also be making a side trip to Berlin. But I don't think any of that is going to happen. My backup plan is a several month long road trip that will go from New Mexico to Maine, which is a place I love except for the ticks. And I will spend a couple of weeks in Maine for both personal and professional reasons. Then I will go to the Great Lakes, where I will also spend time for personal and professional reasons. And then I will go to Washington State, where I will also spend time for personal and professional regions, reasons. And then I will hit southern, southeastern Oregon on the way back, and then through Utah, and then into New Mexico and back home. And I'm guessing that would be preferably at least two months on the road, and I would be doing my blurb job as normal, and also making films and shooting still projects and writing and putting out books and doing what I do. So that's my plan for the, for the summer. 
Okay, point number nine is about the film I made, not last film today, but two days ago I did a film called um, Enter This Raffle, and it's about the Priority 600X. And if you haven't seen that film on my YouTube channel, just go to the film and go to the write-up and go to the link because Priority Bikes and Ryan Van Duzer and Ryan, who's a YouTuber slash cyclist slash athlete out of Boulder, his, his friend Dana, who's a restaurant owner in, in Colorado, and uh, she has a foundation called KRD, which is a foundation that's named in honor of her brother who passed away, and it's an organization that gets kids on bikes. And they are working with Priority Bikes, which who I've mentioned on this podcast before, and they're raffling off a Priority 600X, which is their flat bar adventure touring mountain bike with a pinion gearbox and a Gates carbon belt drive. That's a $3,500 bike, and for 10 bucks you can buy a raffle ticket. I, I put 100 bucks in. I don't know how many tickets that gave me. I have no idea. I don't care. Um, I did it because I had 100 bucks, and I thought, you know what? Getting kids on bikes. They were aiming for 30 grand. I think they're going to at least double that, which is amazing. And it doesn't matter where you are in the world. They will ship the bike to you. You have to pay VAT, I think, and you have to pay like import tax. But you're going to get the $3,500 bike for free. So whatever taxes, and depending on your country, I'm sure that can be a nightmare. But it's worth it because it's not a bike that you can buy in a bike shop. And so I wanted to just call it out here on the podcast because, and I have nothing to do with any of these people. I don't ride a priority. I don't know Ryan. I don't know Dana. But I know of them, and they seem like really solid people. And Priority makes a bike that is very interesting. And I would love to have that bike. Now, if I win the bike, I am going to raffle, not even raffle off. I'm going to give away my full carbon Bianchi D2 carbon cross bike with Dura Ace components on it. So it is a badass bike I bought probably 10 years ago. I think it's a 20, is it a 20? 15? I don't know. I don't remember. 2013, 2011, 20, 2009. Could be any of those. I forget. Full carbon. It was their sort of experimental uh, racing cyclocross bike at the time. And I converted it into a road bike. And now I've converted it back into a gravel bike. It's got Dura Ace on the rear end. It is a fantastic bike. It is feather light. It's got brand new 40 centimeter nanos, WTB nano tires on it. Uh, it's got a new seat, which I have to give away because I didn't buy it. But anyway, I, if I win the priority, I'm going to give away that Bianchi to someone because I don't need three bikes, and I'll keep the salsa for friends and family when they come out to ride. Okay, moving on. I just wanted to bring this up because this was, and then we're going to talk about uh, the space shuttle, and we're going to talk about a toilet in Guatemala and my experience with that particular toilet, which was fantastic. So while the chaos is happening in Washington— I did a little snooping about the hack that happened a month ago, which now seems like a million years ago. No one's talking about it. No one's covering it, seemingly. I'm sure there are, but they're you know, deep down in the, uh, in the cybersecurity world covering it. But the government itself, the mainstream media, has just already forgotten about this. Just think about this. They do not know the bottom of this hack. They're not even remotely close to the bottom of this hack. What we know so far, these are just a few of the departments that have been hacked. The Justice Department, that seems like a pretty important one. The Treasury Department, another one that seems pretty important. Department of Homeland Security, yeah, you can see where I'm going here. The State Department got hacked. The Commerce Department got hacked. The Court System got hacked. The Defense Department got hacked. Contractors got hacked. The telecommunications of the U.S. government got hacked. And oh, by the way, the Nas National Institute of Health, they got hacked as well, all 
by this one hack. Think about that. Every single person in the government has said Russia's fingerprints are all over it. We found the tools. We know it's Russia. Pompeo said it. Department of Homeland Security said it. Chad Wolf said it before he resigned. Russia, 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 Russia. Trump gets up and says, I think it's China. Right. So there's something there with him and Putin. We know this now after five years of hearing him bow down to one of the most like horrific world leaders in the history of our species. Something's going on. That's irrelevant to me at this point. We knew that this Trump was going to do that all along. I don't even care anymore. I'm interested in this hack and the fact that they don't know the bottom. They don't know how far this goes. And that should scare the living hell out of all of us. And I just want to bring it up to remind you that it's happening like the drought, because all the chaos that's happening right now, literally, I think they're voting on a second impeachment right now. So it's easy to get distracted. Okay, this is a positive thing. A couple of nights ago, I'm looking around. I'm drinking a gluten-free beer, like I tend to do, and I'm on Netflix. And I'm no particular direction. I'm just, you know, I'm sitting around, sticky, tacky, disgusting, filthy, unshowered, sticking to the couch, and I'm just surfing Netflix. And I see this documentary on Netflix that's called like The Final Flight, and it's about Space Shuttle shuttle Challenger that blew up in 1986. Now, the film starts out with a teacher pushing a television set through a classroom and turning it on. And that was such a great way to start it because that is exactly where I was. I was a junior in high school. The teacher rolled the television set into the room, and that was what we did in that class was we sat around waiting to watch the launch of the Challenger. And then it blew up, as we all know. It's a horrible story. And the documentary talks about the the sort of ego, I'm going to bring this up again, the ego of NASA not wanting to admit they were wrong, not wanting to admit they had problems, knowing they had problems with O-rings. And people made really bad decisions that cost seven people their lives in a very, very dramatic fashion. You know, to blow up on national television in front of 100 million people was the worst case scenario. But that is not why I'm telling you to watch this film. It's very well done. J.J. Abrams produced it, the Zipper Brothers. Um, they did a really nice job on this, on this series. But the part that jumped out at me, oddly enough, was Ronald Reagan. So Reagan is in power during this time. Uh, Bush Sr., 40, 41, is the VP, former CIA director. And Reagan is making statements about NASA and the space program prior to the Challenger blowing up. And you're seeing him in a podium and he's speaking. And what jumped out at my wife and I was the elegance of, of Ronald Reagan. And I know that might seem jarring to put those two things together because you might love Reagan, you might hate him. I have friends that think he was the greatest thing ever, and I have other friends that think he was the Antichrist. My point is that Ronald Reagan had the ability to go to a podium and string his sentences together and say things that actually, regardless of his politics, you felt that he actually felt. So when talking about the space program, he was saying things you know, like, hey, we're going to go do some things that nobody else is ever going to do, and we're going to lead the world, and we're going to go and explore, and we're going to be in the planets and whatever. And the space shuttle program never got to where they envisioned it would be. They didn't have the number of flights. They had so many delays. And yes, they had the Challenger problem, the explosion. But And then after the fact, when the Challenger has exploded, 
they say, obviously, there's been a major malfunction. They bring the families to a secure location. They do some searching. And after whatever it is, a day, they come and they say, look, there's, there's no way that anyone could have survived that. What I didn't know until two days ago when I saw this was that they did find the crew in the cabin. So they recovered the crew and the cabin off the ocean floor, which is just horrifying. That's just mortifying. My wife and I just like looked at each other and I think she was crying and I was, you know, acting cool like I'd never cry and acting tough because I was literally sweaty stuck to the sofa. But Reagan gets up and says this, you know, reads this speech about the, the, the accident. And I'm just listening to this and I'm thinking, who's left in our government today that could have done that? We have regressed so far as a culture, society, and a government that there's literally, I mean, yes, there's people in the government if I, you know, that can actually speak. But our president, there is no possible way that Donald Trump would have been able to handle that. There's just not. That's just not who he is. To, to take attention away from himself to talk about the fact that seven people died, he could not have done that. But Reagan did, and I was like, wow, that's interesting. And the second part of this is that when the camera would pan across the crowd at, let's say, Cape Canaveral or in the California desert when the space shuttle was coming down to land in the desert, it looked exactly like the middle of a NASCAR track during the Daytona 500, in the middle where the hardcore people come to watch NASCAR. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in actually a good way. Because when the camera pans across and you see all those people, it was every demographic you could think of. It was every age you could think of. And people were literally pumping their fists and screaming, America, USA, so proud of being in America. And everyone was like high-fiving each other. And there were like there were like grannies with 110 Instamatics shoot, trying to do pan blurs of the space shuttle landing at 300 miles an hour and like high-fiving some dude in a biker, biker outfit next to her. And you're like, that's the America I grew up in. That's the America where it was like, yeah, okay, you're a redneck. You're an Ivy League guy. You're a, a female. You're Asian. You're African-American. You, whatever. Everybody was together and just jazzed about being in the U.S., right? We had differences. We had differences of opinion. But it was never the leading conversation. It was always, I'm meeting you on the front of humanity first, or neighbors, or friends, or friends of friends, and everything else was secondary. Now, it seems that we've flipped, and the first thing people are looking to do is find why they're different, and, and drawing lines in the sand and saying, this is my point of view, and you better be on the same page as me, because if you're not, you're the enemy. And you know what? We, we deserve what we're looking at because that's where we, that space shuttle film showed me where we were in the 80s, even in the midst of a tragedy. You know, the space shuttle program was a, something positive. We'd come out of the Vietnam War. The country was in turmoil. There was division. There was indecision. The future was uncertain. The space program was one of the things that congealed America together. And yes, it's a one percenter thing. There's a lot of, tons of people were left behind. But the space, space program, at least for a sizable portion of the demographic, of the, of the makeup of the U.S., was something positive to look at. And that's what I took away from the film. And I was like, God, how did we get where we are now? How did we regress that far? 
in such a short amount of time. But what I thought was, that film's out there and a lot of others like it, and maybe there's a way to get back. And I'm not saying again that that was a perfect time by any stretch of the imagination. But the basic civility and the basic idea of communicating as human beings first and not political human beings, I don't know. It just seemed like something we should get back to. All right, last point. We're at 55 minutes. I could spend another 55 minutes on this point because, oh, I only got 10 minutes. I got another call. Okay, I got 10 minutes to do this. So um, my brother and I had a longstanding running contest of the worst toilet we had ever had to use. And forever, mine was in Guatemala. Um, now, this, is, this was since surplanted, surpassed, conquered by a gas station in Beaumont, Texas that left my brother and I so scarred emotionally and physically that I have never been the same. And my brother was masterful because he went in first and, and he saw what, what had happened in this bathroom and, and ended up using the bathroom and then came out to the car. And I saw him for a brief instant. I saw my brother as he left the bathroom and I was putting gas in the car. I saw him talking to himself and shaking his head. And I should have read that. I should have seen that as the trauma that he had just endured. But my brother has a really good poker face. And he walked up to the car and I finished putting gas in and I go, where's the bathroom? And he very casually pointed over his shoulder and he goes, oh, it's over there. And that, God, I have to tip my hat. That was a master move because I got in that bathroom in Beaumont and my life has never been the same since then. But I'm not talking about the Beaumont bathroom. That has cemented itself as the number one worst bathroom I've ever been in in my life. And ladies, if you've never been in a men's bathroom, it is a living hell. The women's bathroom is a paradise. It is a, it is a pearl in the, in, the, in the center of the world. It is the most wonderful, clean, safe environment I have ever been in in my life. The men's, an average men's restroom is a nightmare of epic proportion. So I'm in Guatemala. I'm traveling in a Mazda two-wheel drive extended cab pickup with a camper shell and eight people in, in this. So the two, two front seats, Four people in the king cab area in the back, and then three more people, or three people in the king cab and four in the back. The truck is riding. It's bouncing on the springs. We've had multiple flat tires. Um, I ground it to the halt. I, I actually literally slammed the entire underside of the truck into a boulder. It ground to a halt. We're in the middle of the jungle in the night. We're in an area we're not supposed to be. We're paranoid. We're just trying to survive this trip. And uh, we get to this place, and it's the middle of the day. We finally run out of flat tires. And so this other guy and myself, we hitchhike in the back of a banana truck hours down this jungle road into a town. We're trying to find a, <clears throat> a tube and a spare tire. We get this stuff sorted out. And so we are waiting to get the tire fixed, and my buddy's like, i got to go to the bathroom really bad. And that's never something you want to hear when you're traveling. Uh, especially in an environment like that where your friend doesn't even look at you and just says, oh, I think, I'm, you know, do you know where the restroom is? He looks at you with a, with, in a cold sweat and he says, I have to use the bathroom really bad. That's never a good sign. That's, that's like going from, from peacetime into DEFCON 1, right? It's, new, it's, th it's the nuclear war of bathroom scenarios. And, I'm, and, and my first thought was, like a good, good friend, is glad it's not happening to me. So we start looking for a bathroom and this is not easy. And so we eventually end up in a small house. Uh, I can't call it a house. This is a very, very, very poor area. It's more of a shack. And there is an open sewer in their backyard. 
Now, the good part is over the open sewer is a two-seater bathroom. It's basically an outhouse on stilts over an open sewer. And so you're jumping th- from island to island in the backyard getting to this toilet on stilts, which is not good, and you do not want to slip. If you slip, your trip is over. So we get up into this thing, and he's, now he's in a panic. He has no time to waste. He's like, this is, this is it. One second too late, and it's, we're not going anywhere, and I'm going to disown him and flee and leave him in the jungle. And so he goes in one side, and I'm thinking, well, I'm already here. I might as well go in and see if there's something I can do. And so I go in my side, and I'm just mesmerized by this entire apparatus. And I am, it's like a soccer match. I'm trying not to touch anything with my hands. I'm using my knees, my elbows. I'm getting in there, and I am like, oh, my God, this is bad. And he's in there now, and he's, he's literally suffering. And I'm like, this is awesome. And all of a sudden, I hear this noise, and I'm like, what was that? What is that? And then I realize it's coming from the hole. And I'm like, I go, hey, dude, there's an animal in the hole. And so now, get this, he is like, he can't leave the bathroom. He can't leave that sanctity of the hole. But yet, underneath his hole, and his hole's connected to my hole. It's not like there's a lot of, you know, plumbing situation here. It's pretty basic. And I'm like, there's an animal, and it's sizable, and it's in the hole. And so now he's faced with, what do I do? Do I risk the animal because I can't leave this? And it was the most incredibly magical moment of my entire time in Guatemala, which was at least a month. And it's probably, outside of getting baked the first time with all those euros, which I talked about a few weeks ago and wandering the streets. It was amazing. This was 1995. I was impervious. I was young. I had no Lyme disease. I had no job. I had no responsibilities anywhere. It was just awesome to travel. And then we ended up in this two-seater outhouse toilet over an open sewer in the jungle with a flat tire and my buddy sick and stapled to his side of the toilet with some sort of beast in the hole. And I thought to myself, oh, we have, we think we have it bad, but there's something living in that hole. That's like his house or her house in there. What's under, it wasn't a human. It was an animal of some sort. It was big. It was not like a rat. It was like a nutria or a, a, a small, I don't know. It could have been a baby elephant for all I know. That's what it sounded like. But God, you know, share your bathroom stories if you've got one, because that was good. I could have made that way more graphic than I did. I gave you the light version. The Beaumont bathroom gas station with my brother at some point, there's no possible way I could give you the real story on this podcast because I'd probably get outlawed and none of you would ever talk to me again. But it was horrendous. And my brother and I now, this was probably 20 years ago. My brother had won a trip to the Bahamas on the radio. Oh, I'm going to tell you that story next. It was unbelievable. Every single thing went wrong. It's as bad as it sounds. Won a trip to the Bahamas on the radio, took me. I was dumb enough to go. But we visited the Beaumont bathroom on the way. And all my brother and I have to do 20 years later is say the word Beaumont. And we look at each other and we close our eyes and shake our heads because it singed our soul. It was so bad. But anyway, that's the podcast for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, I'm off to do a blurb marketing call of some sort. And uh, I'll be back.